Hey guys, it's me, Professor D, and welcome to my very first audio lesson for the future NPs. So if you're a student right now to be a nurse practitioner, listen up. If you follow me on any of my social media platforms, you know that I do not believe in wasting time. I give you the meat and potatoes. So here's how this podcast is going to work. I'm going to provide you with information that you will most likely see on your exam for boards. Now, something I want you to think about, the people who write these exams, they will not take their precious time to write a question on a disease or disorder that only one person in 10 million people ever get. No, the content you're going to see is what you're most likely to see when you're on the floor, because the whole point of you taking this test is to prove that you're a safe nurse practitioner, to prove that you're competent. So I want you to keep that in mind when you're studying. Yes, you need to study everything because I don't write the I don't write the test. I don't know what's on it, but I have a very good idea what is on it and what's been um what has shown consistently, what has shown up consistently on the state exams to be an NP. Doesn't matter what state you're from. Florida, Texas, California, it doesn't matter. There are certain disorders. There are certain concepts. It does not matter. You need to know that as a nurse practitioner because you see this so often in the field and you have to know how to practice safely. Okay, so before I get started, let me make this clear. Guys, I have no sponsors, no nothing, okay? So I'm not getting paid at all to do this. So I'm asking you, please, if you appreciate, you know, the gems that I'm about to throw your way, the only thing I ask you to do is help me grow. Tell friends, anyone that you know that's in the nursing program, because I also have uh, this podcast is also for nursing students and um I will title them accordingly so when they're posted, you know if it's for a nursing student, LPNRN, or if it's a nurse practitioner student. So regardless, um, if you appreciate what these gems I'm about to throw your way, please, I'm asking you to do just one thing. Help me grow. Share uh, my podcast. Post them. Tell friends that you know about them that would be interested in my podcast. That's all I ask, for, ask of you. Okay, so on this podcast, I'm going to talk to you about hyperlipidemia. What's that? High cholesterol. Lots of things can cause high cholesterol, but I'm only going to go over the ones that you'll most likely see on the exam, guys. Um, Causes for high cholesterol, hyperlipidemia. Obviously, a high intake of dietary lipids. If you eat things that have lots of fats in it, lots of oil, such as fried foods, pizza, hamburger, right? Anything that um, has lots of fats, that can cause um, hyperlipidemia, right? What else? Being obese. Being a couch potato, having that sedentary lifestyle, hypothyroidism, and I'm going to get into that more with you in a little bit, but whenever you're uh, suspecting um, hyperlipidemia, guess what? Hypothyroidism needs to be one of your differential diagnoses. What else can cause hyperlipidemia? Diabetes. And the last one I want to talk to you about is metabolic syndrome. And you better know metabolic syndrome like the back of your hand. I'm going to talk about that in another podcast. But don't forget metabolic syndrome. You know, that's your hypertension, your glucose intolerance, coagulation abnormalities, and obesity. Okay? All of these can cause patient to have um, high cholesterol. Now, here's something that's kind of funny. Not funny, but... Mm. 
When it comes to high cholesterol, the incidence, we see this the same in men, but in women, but the onset, we see the onset in women about 10 to 15 years later than we do um, in men. So what I'm saying here, guys, is as far as the incidence is concerned, we see high cholesterol in both men and women the same, but it doesn't start in women until about 10 to 15 years later than when we see it start in men, okay? Something else you need to know about it, as the patient gets older, their risk increases. And it makes more sense, guys, because the longer that you're living on this earth, that's the more time you have to eat the pizzas, the hot dogs, the the, the everything fried, everything full of fat and grease under the world, right? So the longer a patient lives, the longer that they have for those lipids and those fats to do what? Stick on the inner lining of the vessel, right? Which causes the blood that's flowing through that vessel to stretch the vessel even more that causes the hypertension. So it makes sense that as the patient ages, we see their risk factor go up even higher. So let's talk about risk factors. Having a family history of hypertension, um, again, guys, being a couch potato, not exercising, that's a risk factor. Now, you know smoking's a risk factor. Smoking, um, diabetes, as I talked to you about that before, eating foods high in fats and lipids, being obese. And then remember, guys, I told you that the incidence is equal in men and women, but women get it later because remember, they're about 10 to 15 years behind the men as far as onset is concerned. So in men, we tend to see this when they're about, you know, older than 45, but in women, we tend to see it when they're older than 55. So don't forget the major risk factors, guys, because those exams are, let me tell you, these exams, guys, are very big on risk factors, and I'm going to explain to you why. They're big on risk factors because they're big on primary prevention measures. What are primary prevention measures? These are things that you can teach or do for the patient to prevent the disease or disorder from happening. So it only makes sense if you understand the risk factors, you understand what to do and what to teach, so the patient doesn't have whatever it is that we're concerned about. So you have to know risk factors, guys. Uh, your state exam is very heavy on primary prevention measures, such as teaching, such as vaccinations. They're heavy on it. So again, risk factors for um, high cholesterol, hyperlipidemia. By the way, um, if you haven't been following me on all my social media platforms, I suggest you do. One thing to know about me, if you see me report, first of all, if I say something, it's important. I don't like wasting time. But if I say something more than once, it's very important. I'm repeating these major risk factors again. Age, as you get older, your risk goes higher. For men older than 45, women older than 55. Having a, a history, family history, such as, you know, first degree relative, brother, sister, mom, dad, smoking cigarettes, having hypertension. Guys, don't forget your... Um, your ranges. Your range is supposed to be 90 over 60, 140 over 90. Anything over that 140 over 90 is what? Hypertension. So having hypertension, that's a risk factor. Don't forget your ADL, your, I can't speak, your HDL and your LDL. Your HDL, you want it to be high. That's your good cholesterol. Your LDL, you want to be low. That is your um, bad, bad cholesterol. 
So a risk factor for hyperlipidemia are patients where their HDL, which we want to be high, the HDL is low. The HDL is less than 40. Triglycerides more than 200. What else is a risk factor? Metabolic syndrome, and I already explained to you what that is. I'm going to go more into detail when we get to that section, but for now, you know what you need to know about that. And any patient who has a history of heart disease, okay, those are the major risk factors. So let's talk about tests. What kind of diagnostic tests are you going to do? Obviously, you're going to be doing a fasting lipid panel, right? You want to look at that ALT, that AST, Okay. Something important, you're going to make sure that you teach uh, the patient before they, they get their blood drawn for it that you want them to have been fasting a solid, you know, um, 10, 11 hours before that blood is drawn. You also want to check the patient's glucose. And let me tell you something, because let me back up before I tell you what I was going to say to you. You want to check their glucose because if you can recall, one of the things I told you is a risk factor and can cause it is what? Diabetes. Now, patients, especially those who are non-compliant, they love to try to trick the healthcare professional. So they'll eat very well about a day or two before they have to go get their blood drawn. So that's why you're not only getting the glucose, you're going to be getting what as well? The hemoglobin A1C. Because that hemoglobin A1C is going to give us a picture of what their blood sugar has looked like for the past three months, the past 90 days. So they can't pull one over on you. Okay. What else are we going to want to get on this patient? We're going to get a urinalysis. Why are we getting your analysis specifically? What are we looking at? We're looking at, um, we want to see if there's any bacteria in the urine and we want to get creatinine. This is very important. Why? That creatinine will let us know if something's going on uh, with the kidneys. Because if something's going on with the kidneys, for example, that patient has nephrotic syndrome, that can cause the patient to have uh, dyslipidemia. Those kidneys aren't working. Patient's not getting rid of anything. They're holding on to it. Okay, so that's why we want to get the urinalysis. We want to look at the creatinine. And of course, guys, we're going to be checking for the patient's thyroid stimulating hormone. That's a TSH. Why? Well, remember when I was talking about the risk factors, didn't I tell you hypocholesterolemia can cause, um, excuse me, <laughs> I can't talk. I told you um, hypothyroidism can cause hypercholesterolemia. Remember hypothyroidism? So that's why we're looking at the TSH. Because if that TSH is high, what does that tell you? Hypothyroidism. Remember, guys, if the TSH is high, the reason that thyroid stimulating hormone is high is because the hormone levels are low. That's why it's stimulating the thyroid to make more of the hormone. Does that make sense? All right, let's move on. Let's talk about some patient teaching where we're going to teach a patient to help prevent this. Number one, you're going to teach them healthy lifestyle, diet, to decrease the foods that are high in lipids and fats and to eat more what? Fruits, vegetables, stop drinking juice and drink what? Water. We're going to teach a patient that their total cholesterol intake needs to be less than 200 milligrams per day, period. Period. 
And I'm going to go back to the fruits and vegetables because I want to kind of paint a picture of, for you to understand why it's so important. Fruits and vegetables are high in what? Fiber. Fiber is what the, ha- helps the patient have that bowel movement, right? Because fiber can't be digested. It goes in, it, it goes out. But the wonderful thing about fiber is that as it's going out, it pulls all that crap out with it. So fiber is like a come with me, come with me, come with me, come with me, come with me. Come with me, come with me. That fiber goes through your digestive tract and all of the lipids, all of the fat, all of that crappy stuff that you shouldn't have been eating in the first place. All those carcinogens that's been sitting there and changing the lining of your GI tract to possibly turn them into cancerous cell cells, that's what fiber does. Fiber says, come with me, come with me, come with me. So when you have a bowel movement, all of that crap that was sitting in the lining of the GI tract, possibly changing those cells, now exit the patient's body. And that really helps bring down the cholesterol level, okay? You're going to teach them to have an active lifestyle. Start exercising. Cardio is great. Gets the heart pumping. Gets the heart pumping. What's the heart pumping? Blood. What's in that blood? Oxygen, vitamins, nutrients, minerals, all that good stuff that the body needs. So you're going to teach that to the patient. So speaking of exercise, are you just going to say exercise? No, you have to be specific. You have to teach them that they need to be exercising at least in the minimum of two and a half hours a week. At least. This is going to help uh, bring down the cholesterol. It's going to help bring down the uh, blood pressure if they have high blood pressure. It's going to help them lose weight. Because remember, another risk factor is what? Obesity. Guys, are you seeing how all of this is tying in? So you're going to teach them, of course, to lose weight, to cease tobacco products. And I want you to notice I said cease. Did I say slow down? No, I said stop. And of course, whatever um, secondary disorders or diseases that the patient has that can make uh um, them have hypertension, not hypertension, high cholesterol, even worse, you're going to teach them to manage it. Like what? You know, the diabetes, the hypothyroidism, the hypertension. Remember, all of those are risk factors to have high cholesterol. So if we get uh, the, the diabetes, the hypothyroidism, the hypertension, we get that in check, then obviously we're going to be able to get the high cholesterol in check. So you're always going to teach the patient about managing those diseases as well. Let's talk about drugs. There are lots of drugs on the market for uh, high cho- um, high cholesterol. I'm going to go over the ones that you're more, most likely to see on your state exam. Guys, don't make me responsible for this now. You need to study everything. I'm just highlighting things to you. Okay, let's start with the statins. Here's what the statins do. And you'll know it's a statin because it ends in statins such as Atorva statin. Okay, here's what the statins do. They stop the enzyme that makes cholesterol, okay? That's part of how it works. It basically stops the enzyme that actually produces the cholesterol. So that's how it brings the cholesterol down. Um, Some important things you need to know about the statins. That is our first-line treatment when it comes to high cholesterol, hyperlipidemia. Now, um, we always try non-pharmacologic measures first. Right. We always want to teach a patient, you know, diet, exercise, things that they can do without taking medications. But once we get to the point where, you know, the hyperlipidemia is not being managed, we have to start put the patient on medication. And this is our first line medication that we give for hyperlipidemia, the statins. 
But there's some important things you need to know about the statins. Before you put a patient on statin, you better do a liver function test. Because remember, the liver is responsible for what? Metabolizing medications. Right? So if that liver isn't functioning properly, well, guess what's going to happen? The patient's going to get a toxic level very quickly. Okay? So before you put a patient on a statin, you're going to be checking, doing a liver function test. And then after you put them on the statin, after, you know, uh, the first time you put them on the statin, you need to recheck it in about four to six weeks. And then after that, about every four months afterwards. What are you going to watch out for? The number one thing I see they ask about on the state exams as far as the stands are concerned is rhabdomyolysis. And the question usually goes something like this. You know, um, they give you a situation where patient was hyperlipidemic, you know, you couldn't get it down in, with non-pharmacologic measures, you had to put them on a statin, and the patient comes in, no, the, excuse me, the patient calls and says, hey, you know, I've been having a pain in my left or right calf for an hour now, I'm not sure what to do, and you know, what are you going to tell the patient? And I'm telling you what the answer is right now. Tell them not to take that medication anymore and to come in right away. Why? You're going to suspect rhabdomyolysis or some type of myopathy. Okay, what else do we need to know about the statins? You're going to teach a patient not to take that drug with um, grapefruit juice. And to be honest, guys, there's only like three meds that I can think of on top of my head that it's okay to take with grapefruit juice. Grapefruit juice, it just interacts with every single medication I can think of. So grapefruit juice is always a no-no. We don't want them taking it with grapefruit juice. And if the patient's pregnant, they can't take this medication. So even though this is our first line drug for hyperlipidemia, not so during pregnancy. By the way, you know, I'm talking about pregnancy. Pregnancy can cause uh, the patient to have hyperlipidemia temporarily. Okay. But anyway, statins are not good for a pregnant patient. You will not order that. Lovastatin, which is also statin, guys, something important about this particular medication, you're going to teach a patient to take this med um, with dinner. We want them to take it in the evening time, but we want them to take it with food. And if the patient's taking a calcium channel blocker such as verapamil, or if they're taking amiodarone, they cannot take more than 40 milligrams of lovastatin per day. So you need to know that because remember, you're the one ordering this medication. If this patient's taking verapamil or amiodarone, you cannot order more than 40 milligrams per day of lovastatin. All right, the next um, uh, class I want to talk to you about are the bile acid sequestrants. Now, the way that these meds work is that they bind the bile and it, it, it keeps... It keeps that bile from being absorbed in the patient's GI tract. So what they do is what? They have a bowel movement and it comes out. And that's what brings down the cholesterol. Here's the thing. Remember where it's working in the GI tract in the intestine. So even though it prevents um, that bowel from being absorbed, unfortunately, it can also keep important vitamins from being absorbed, specifically our fat-soluble vitamins. Because that's the whole point of the bile acid sequestrants, right? Keeping the, the fat from being absorbed. But there's the good ones you need, your, your, your fat-soluble vitamins. It can prevent those from being absorbed too, guys. Don't forget your fat-soluble vitamins, your ADEC, A-D-E-K. 
right? So you're going to watch out for that. If you put the patient on that, make sure you're keeping track of their fat-soluble vitamins. And remember, this med works where? In the GI tract. So it can cause constipation and flatulence. Warn the patient because if you don't and they're farting all over the place, you think they're going to keep taking the med? No, they're going to stop. So you have to teach them that and see if they're okay with it, right? Because you might have to order something else. And one more thing, it might um, decrease absorption of lots of other, you know, meds that the patient takes by mouth. Why? Because think about where the action of this drug is in the GI tract. So with bowel acid sequestrants, obviously, guys, you're going to teach the patient that they cannot take bowel acid sequestrants with other meds because it can make, you know, the other meds not be absorbed in the body. So that's very important. And guys, as follow-up, don't forget, you're going to continue monitoring this patient. Once you see they're stable, you can change the follow-up to every 6 to 12 months and evaluate as needed. And guys, that's your hyperlipidemia. I hope... Um, you found this podcast to be helpful. If you did, please share my content. Help me grow. Um, if there's anything you'd like to see me... Guys, this is my first one. But if there's anything you'd like to see me cover, cover you know, soon, you can email me at 